Hello, friends. Welcome. Very excited to have you here today because I am speaking with legendary actor George Takei. George is most famous for his role on Star Trek, but he's been in dozens of productions. And George's family was incarcerated by the United States government when he was a child. His story is fascinating and compelling, and I'm very grateful that he took the time to share it with us today. So let's dive in. I'm Sharon McMahon, and here's where it gets interesting. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you were a child, do you remember any instances of feeling that people discriminated against you or people treated you differently because your family was Japanese? Well, as a teenager, I found out about that, but I have no memory, actual genuine memory as a, a child from you know babyhood to uh, five years old. A year and a half before Pearl Harbor, my parents bought a home, a two-bedroom home in East L.A. on Garnet Street. So we actually were living where I was born at the time when incarceration came down. Mm. Kids are smarter than a lot of people give them credit for. And I know you were quite young when all of this began to happen, but I am curious if you can recall the first time you picked up on something was different, something was changing. Do you remember that moment? My parents were very protective of us. I was the oldest. My brother was a year younger, and my baby sister was almost a year old. So I had no idea about that turmoil until that scary day. I turned five years old on April 20th, 1942. And just weeks after my fifth birthday, my father came into the bedroom that I shared with my brother and dressed us hurriedly and then told Henry and me to wait in the living room while our parents did some last-minute packing in their bedroom. So we were in the living room, bored to death. So we were standing by the front window, gazing out 
at the neighborhood, and suddenly we saw two soldiers marching up our driveway. That was shocking. They carried rifles with shiny bayonets on them. They stomped up the porch and with their fists began banging on the front door. My father came rushing out of the bedroom, answered the door, and literally at bayonet point, they ordered us out of our home. Henry and I were terrorized. We saw the soldiers coming, stomping up the steps, and that's the first memory I have of the change that happened in our lives. What did your parents tell you in that moment that had to be, as you mentioned, it was had to be terrifying for a child? What explanation did your parents give you? They just said, we're moving. They didn't explain. And they said, a lot of other Japanese Americans are going to be moving. So we're moving with them. And they simplified everything for us and sanitized everything for us. I'm sure they were trying to just, you know, protect you from from being afraid and trying to normalize your life as much as possible. And I can understand from their perspective why they might have made that choice. So when the soldiers showed up at your house and your parents said, we're moving, what happened next? Well, my father gave Henry and me a box tied with twine to carry, and he hefted two heavy suitcases And we followed him out onto the driveway, and we stood there waiting for our mother to come out. And when she came out, she had our baby sister in one arm, a huge duffel bag in the other, and tears were streaming down her cheeks. I will never be able to forget that morning. We were loaded onto a a huge truck with other Japanese-American families who were already loaded on with their luggage driven downtown to the Buddhist temple. And we saw a lot of other Japanese-American families with their luggage uh, there on the sidewalk and a row of buses on the street. We were uh, unloaded from the uh, truck and boarded those buses. And this caravan of uh, buses drove us out to Santa Anita racetrack in the um, suburban area of Eastern Los Angeles. And we were unloaded, herded over to the stable area, and each family was assigned a horse stable to sleep in, pungent with the scent of uh, stink of horse manure, insects skittering around on the ground, the air filled with flies and other insects. And they took us, uh, us three kids, into that horse stall, As a teenager, I had many after-dinner discussions with my father, and he said that was the most painful, humiliating, degrading, the scent of that pungent smell of horse manure. And my baby sister promptly got ill, and shortly after that, I got sick as well. And uh, for some odd reason that, that I can't remember, my parents took our baby sister and Henry to get medicine or fill out some documents. And so I was left alone in that horse stall and asked our neighbor lady to look in on me. And she literally did because we were separated by partitions that came to about eye level. And uh, the next door lady would appear over and say, Georgie, are you all right? 
And I would say, I'm all right. So I have those memories of Santa Anita. Henry was happy to be sleeping where the horses slept. And actually, I kind of joined in with that, except with getting sick. It was totally opposite reaction to what our parents had. So the same experience that was so excruciatingly painful for, for our parents. And we thought it's going to be fun to sleep where the horses sleep. Breathe deeply and you can smell the horses. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, little children think it's really fun to like just sleep on a floor somewhere. Like that seems very adventurous to small children. But your parents knew the gravity of what was happening. Oh, I mean, it, they lost everything. Our home, their business, their bank account was frozen. And later on, I know that they were subjected to people yelling at them, spitting at them. My father's car had three letters painted on it, J-A-P, that racist hate word. All that we never knew about until I was a teenager and had these discussions with my uh, father. Mm. How long were you at Santa Anita for? About four months. We were there temporarily while the camps were being built. And uh, then it was announced that uh, we're going to be moving again. And I remember asking my father, or maybe, you know, I mean, things that we talked about when I was a teenager merged with, I think, what I remember. And uh, my father told me that we were going for a long vacation in the country and that we would be going by train this time. And I thought it was going to be fun a long vacation, and a train ride to boot. Henry and I had never been on a train before, so that was exciting. So I remember that hope. But then the other thing is, all the grown-ups were very sober, serious, and some people were crying. And so I, I couldn't understand. We're going on this vacation on a train. And so, uh, again, that dichotomy, Mm -hmm. the environment, and what I felt. Did your parents ever discuss with you? Did they know even? No, they they didn't know. They didn't know where we were going. They never found out how it was decided who went where? No. No. So after you were there for four months and your parents told you we're going on a long vacation, can you take us back to when you arrived and got on the train? What was that train journey like for you? I remember, even after camp, my mother describing that journey as three days and two nights, three days and two nights, you know, with that kind of train uh, track rocking rhythmic uh, repetition. She said it was three days and two nights, three days and two nights. So I remember those numbers. But what I remember was the chaos at the station when we were boarded. And I thought every vacation in the country by train had soldiers, a, a soldier at both ends of each car. It was many, many cars long, so lots of soldiers. And there were soldiers on the platform telling us where to stand. And now we board. So I thought that was the way vacations in the country started. And it was exciting getting on a train, but I couldn't understand why the adults, the grown-ups, were so 
either a stoic or uh, some ladies burst out crying along the way. And uh, the other thing I remember is when uh, we approached a um, town or a village, a cowboy town, I, I call them, because it was, you know, the deserts of uh, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, and then Arkansas was our ultimate destination. And it was boring and dusty and hot. But my mother's big duffel bag was a huge source of wonderful surprises. Each, even my sister, got her own water canteen. And that was a special treat. And uh, getting sips of lukewarm water out of that canteen. But she also had other things like bubblegum and uh, uh, suckers and uh, animal cracker boxes that we played with and storybooks that her father read to us. She was prepared for a long journey and uh, things to keep us occupied. But that huge duffel bag also hid something else. I talk about it in my uh, book, They Called Us Enemy. It looked heavy, and I tried touching it, and, and sure enough, it was heavy. And so we thought it was really packed, loaded with lots of candies and uh, suckers and other goodies. It turned out my mother smuggled in her new portable sewing machine. Anything with sharp edges or points and mechanical were forbidden. It was really endangering us. She wouldn't let my father carry that huge duffel bag. She was smuggling in this sewing machine because she thought the children will be needing new clothes. We're growing. I, I was five, just turned five. Henry was four, and my baby sister was turning into a regular human being that wore not just gowns, but trousers and so forth. And she marched past all those guards, hefting that heavy duffel bag. Did she ever get found out about the sewing machine? No, uh, near the time when we were about to be released, she mm. told. <laughs> that also speaks to her mindset that she believed she was going to be gone for a long time. Yes, it was a war happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, uh, that's not what I knew then, you know, but there are doubts. And Japan had bombed Pearl Harbor. It was going to be a long, painful, dangerous. Some people that thought that we, we were going to be uh, executed. The train stopped in the middle of a desert, I remember. And I talk about this in my book as well. And... Uh, for us, it was a chance to, uh, Henry and me, to, to run around and throw uh, sand at each other and all that. But when I was a teenager and having discussions with my father after dinner, he said some people thought that we were going to be slaughtered on the desert. That had to be terrifying. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
In the words of Dwight Schrute, Identity theft is not a joke, Jim. But seriously, if you've ever had somebody try to steal your credit card number and then try to make a bunch of fraudulent charges, that has happened to me on more than one occasion. If it's happened to you, you know it's a nightmare. Having your personal information on the internet is like giving strangers the key to your front door. Not good. And Delete Me can keep that door locked and your information safe. And I recently found a solution that is a service called Delete Me. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information that you don't want online and they make sure that it stays off. It is a subscription service that finds your personal info on the web, searches all the databases, and then helps prevent identity theft by removing that information from all of these databases. So when you sign up, you tell Delete Me exactly what information you want deleted, and then their experts take it from there. They send you a report every month of like, we found your information in the following places and we removed it. More simply, Delete Me does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal info off the web. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount just for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash Sharon and use promo code Sharon at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash Sharon and use code Sharon at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash Sharon, promo code Sharon. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress in our life. Absolutely. It's unavoidable. It's just part of the human experience. But some of us have more than others and some of us handle it better than others. Some of us really keep it bottled up and it can start to affect us negatively. I would imagine at some point in your life, you can relate to this, right? And therapy is a safe space to be able to get some of these things off your chest. And that is why so many people find benefit in speaking to a qualified professional. If you're thinking about starting therapy for something like managing your stress, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Sharon today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Sharon. Can you tell us a little bit about the differences between the assembly centers like you lived in for four months at the a racetrack and the camp that you took up residence in in Arkansas? As we approached the uh, camp, the train started to slow down, and then we saw the uh, barbed wire fence, and then we saw hordes of masses of Japanese Americans just standing, watching the new arrivals. And I saw the sentry towers, and rows and rows and rows of black tar paper barracks behind the massed uh, uh, people there. And uh, at night, there were searchlights that followed us when we made the night run to the latrine. My mother always felt that was so invasive. Each time 
we had to go to the uh, laboratory. The uh, lights would, as if we, you know, we're going to escape. We're in the middle of a swamp. Who could escape from there and, and survive? But for me, I thought it was nice that they lit the way for me to pee. So again, you know, the, the parallel experiences, what my mother felt and what I felt, totally opposed. Mm. I've read some other firsthand accounts of some of the camps that were in Arkansas, and the people talked about the mud and the rain and the mosquitoes. And I wondered if that was your experience, too. Well, this is the story I tell often. It was reclaimed swampland. They tore down the trees and built this uh, prison camp. All the camps, all 10 of them, were built in the most isolated places. We were dangerous to America. So they wanted to isolate us from any kind of human habitation. Can you imagine the blistering hot deserts of Arizona, New Mexico? Wyoming is is the high plains. It was cold and windswept and desolate. And we were in the middle of a sultry, hot, humid swamp. And when it rained, it turned right back into a swamp. And people had to make three trips a day to the mess hall to eat. Elderly people could not make it because their legs, feet would sink. Elderly people had to be carried by young men on their backs so that they could go to the uh, mess hall. And my father wasn't a young man. He was an early middle-aged man. But he was always volunteering for, you know, the distribution of the cots, uh, the blankets were being handed out, and he he was a volunteer. And he helped organize the uh, crew to build a boardwalk, a narrow boardwalk, connecting every barrack in the camp to uh, the mess hall and the other essential place people had had to go to, the latrine, (laughs) the intake and the alcohol. all the barracks were connected to those two uh, essential places. I remember across from our barrack was a mixed a mixed race uh, couple, a Japanese man and a uh, white lady. Uh, Mr. Amemia was short and skinny, and Mrs. Amemia, they weren't married. Interracial marriages were illegal then, but. My, our parents told us, that's uh, Mrs. Amemia. She was tall and rather portly. And she must have felt very, very awful being the sole visible white lady. And she never went to the mess hall. Mr. Amemia went to the mess hall and got two meals and brought it back. And they ate it, ate it uh, in their... Uh, barrack unit and she very rarely came out and occasionally she would come out and stand in the doorway and just look look around for a while and then go back in so uh, Henry and I called her the, the ghost lady she was white and she wore uh, this kind of a house coat and she had snow white hair so she was our ghost lady right across from us and whenever she came out, Henry would say, she's out, she's, she, came, she came out, she came out. What was school like in the camps? 
On my first day at school, this is at Thrower, Arkansas, and the classrooms were barracks divided into different units. There was an American flag at the head of the classroom, and the teacher said, on the first day, I'm going to teach you the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, and we'll begin every school day with the Pledge of Allegiance. So you are to memorize it, say it without having to refer to notes. We will all memorize it. And I remember reciting our pledge and looking out the window. I could see the barbed wire fence and the sentry tower as I recited the words with liberty and justice for all. Too innocent, too young to understand the stinging irony in those words. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. What was the food like? This is from what my father tells me, and I think I remember, but I think it's more influenced by my father when I was a, a teenager and, and discussing it. He said one of the early meals at Roar was what he called beef brain. And he had never heard of beef brain. Most of the people had never heard of beef brain. It was kind of a glop that they had over rice. And uh, he said that night, the latrine got a lot of business. <laughs> mm, there are, of course, um, many, many ways that it was so humiliating and challenging to live under those circumstances, but to not be able to control hardly any facets of your life, including what and when you will eat, had to really exacerbate that for your parents. It was all according to the uh, schedule and the routine and the food that the uh, camp authorities mm-hmm. sent when you weren't in school, how did you pass your time? Was it playing in the barracks with your brother? Was there a playground? What did you do with your time? We were two kids from Los Angeles in this fantastical, magical world. Beyond the barbed wire fence was what they called the bayou, black water, and huge trees rose up from it, and their roots emerged out of the water and twisted and turned and went back into the water and came out and went back in uh, like a snake. It was fascinating. And some of the bayou came under the barbed wire fence and uh, I saw little tiny black 
wiggly fish that, that were not too fast, and I could catch them with my hand and put them in a pickle jar that we got from uh, the mess hall and watch them grow. And uh, it was absolutely fascinating. These black fishies, as we called them, suddenly developed bumps on their sides. And the bumps got bigger every morning. And one morning, the bumps had broken and what looked like legs came out. And the next morning, their tail fell off and they turned into frogs and crept (laughs) out of my jar. They escaped. (laughs) Magical things were happening. All the discoveries uh, that uh, we made and the butterflies were so different and big there and uh, the um, big boys they were like nine or ten years old played tricks on us they said there's a magic word and if you say that magic word just right the guards will let you have anything in the world that you want but you have to walk up to the uh, sentry towers and shout out to them all the things you want and then shout out in a loud voice and very fast that magic word. And uh, so they taught it to me. They said, the word is Sakana Beach. Sakana means fish and beach is. And uh, so I thought, what's so magical about that? But you know, uh, if if they'll respond to that, I'll do it. But uh, the big boys said, you have to say it real fast as fast as you can and as loud as you can because they're going to be up there. So I started uh, with, with that in mind and started walking. And as I was walking, they said to me, yeah, you, you better do it right because if you don't uh, do it right, they're going to get mad and they're going to start shooting at you. <laughs> and as I approached, uh, the, the soldiers came down, were down and they were smoking at the foot of the... Uh, a sentry tower. And so I got close as close as I could to, to, to the barbed wire fence and I shouted out to them the magic word, Sakana Beach, real fast. Sakana Beach! Sakana Beach! They got mad and they start, They bent over and started throwing pebbles at me and I ran like a bat out of hell, <laughs> grabbed Henry's hand and ran. And the, and the, the two big boys were laughing away. I asked my mother back at the barrack, uh, what's, uh, what does this ma- uh, magic uh, word, uh, what's the magic in it? And my mother said, Sakana means beach, uh, uh, Sakana means fish, and beach is beach. So what's magical about that? We asked our father when he came back in the, uh, in the evening. He was a block manager, incidentally. My father spoke Japanese and English fluently. And so he was able to communicate with the immigrant generation as well as the uh, uh, English-speaking, American-born generation. And so he was always away from us, dealing with some uproar in the block or with the block and the the camp command. And uh, when Daddy came back, Daddy couldn't figure it out, and he kept repeating, Sakana Beach. Sakana Beach. And then he started laughing and he explained to us, you boys are good boys. You must never use that word. It is a, a, a bad word that that's me, meant to insult people. 
and you don't want to use that. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's right. I, I learned later on there are a lot of magical words that, that the Japanese internees had for the soldiers, too. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. Yes. I would love to hear about, maybe you learned about this uh, from your parents when you were a teenager. How did they feel about things like the loyalty questionnaires that were given to people who were in, incarcerated? Do you remember that? Well, I know about that because that was a, a major change again in our incarceration experience for my parents. You know, a, a private conversation was impossible there. The uh, partitions in our barrack rooms were paper thin. We could hear the whispering in the next room and they could hear the wh whispering in our, and rumors were running rampant. In the camp, the Japanese American community became fractured. There were people that curried favors with the guards or with the camp command and the people in the camp called them Inu, the Japanese word for dog. They are traitors. They're snitching on, on us. It was a rumor-filled place. But a year into imprisonment, the government had categorized all Japanese Americans as enemy alien, which was preposterous, you know, to begin with. No, no thought, no evidence of anything. We had nothing to do with Pearl Harbor. But because we looked like this, and they could find no other way to justify imprisoning us. They made up the term enemy alien. We weren't the enemy, and we certainly weren't alien. My mother was born in Sacramento. My father was born in Japan, but brought over to San Francisco as a child, and he was raised and educated and spoke English fluently. He was like a Japanese American, and yet they categorized everyone as enemy alien. And uh, the government realized there's a wartime manpower shortage. And here are all these young people that they could have had in military service that they had categorized as enemy alien. How to rationally justify drafting enemy aliens out of a barbed wire prison camp for service in the United States military? Their solution was even more outrageous and, and the imprisonment, the incarceration itself. They came down with a loyalty questionnaire. In the chaos and confusion of wartime, many incompetents got lodged in the bureaucracy of the military and of the government. And it was clearly these incompetents that were given the assignment of drafting the loyalty questionnaire. It was about 35 questions, most of them uh, pretty uh, standard. What kind of work did you do? Where did you do it? How long? There were two critical questions that they needed to have yes answers to. Otherwise, you were disloyal. Question 27 asked, are you willing to serve in the United States military on combat duty wherever ordered? For my parents, they had three very young children. My sister was a toddler by that time. I was six years old. Henry was five. They were being asked to abandon their children in barbed wire imprisonment and bear arms to defend the country that's holding their children imprisonment. It was 
outrageous to demand that parents give up their children and risk their lives as soldiers. They answered the only way they could answer, honestly and truthfully, no. Question 28 was even more egregious. It was one sentence with two conflicting ideas. It asked, will you swear your loyalty to the United States of America and forswear your loyalty to the Emperor of Japan? The word forswear presumes that there is an inborn existing racial loyalty, which is insulting. We're Americans. We never even thought of a loyalty to the emperor, much less actually profess to have that. So if you answered, no, I don't have a loyalty to the emperor, that no applied to the first part of the very same sentence, because they were tied together. If you wanted to answer no, a yes, meaning I do swear my loyalty to the United States, that yes carried over to the second part meant that you were confessing that you had a non-existent loyalty to the emperor to forswear. It was an outrageous, illiterate, stupid question. And my parents' attitude was, they're not going to be toyed with like, like this. You, lo you lose with a yes and you lose with a no. It's outrageous. And they answered no to that. And with those two no's, they were put into another category called disloyal. As a child at that time, knew nothing about this except that my parents went on long walks, just the two of them. They couldn't talk about it in, in our unit because it'd be heard. They went on long walks around other barracks far away from our block. And this I remember. When they came back from their long walks, my mother's eyes were bloodshot as if she had been crying intensely. And the, both their faces were very serious. And then they put on a phony smile for us. But I do remember their return from their long walks. And as an adult, how torturous that must, must have been for them knowing how dangerous their situation was already in the camp, and to take that bold stance of answering those questions, those stupid, illiterate, I mean, the, the question 28 particularly, to have no way of answering that correctly, and knowing the great risks that, that they were taking by uh, answering those questions in the way they did, and so with those two no's, they were categorized as disloyal, and we had to be moved again. Y'all, we could not fit everything into one episode. I did not want to cut anything out of George's incredible story and insight. And so I hope you will join me next time as we conclude our powerful interview with actor George Takei. Thank you so much for listening to Here's Where It Gets Interesting. And I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. If you enjoyed this episode, would you consider leaving us a rating or a review or sharing a link to it on your social media? All of those things help podcasters out so much. Here's Where It Gets Interesting is written and researched by executive producer Heather Jackson. Our audio engineer is Jenny Snyder and it's hosted by me, Sharon McMahon. See you again soon.